This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. A big thank you to all our members for making our truth journey a reality. To listen to part two of tonight's interview and all of our material, just go to veritasradio.com and click on the subscribe button. You'll receive your login immediately. And have you considered giving the gift of Veritas for the holidays or any occasion? What about the gift of health by giving a Sanitas subscription? You can give three, six, or nine months, or one or two years. You have known and trusted us for five years now, and you know our information makes a difference, especially when you cannot get it in the mainstream media, as it is the case with tonight's interview. And the futuristic metal case USB drive with season five and bonus material is now available along with MMS, our water purifiers, and more, all on our website and the Veritas store. And to get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Today's special guest is best-selling author, investigative journalist, former law enforcement officer, and senior executive in the technology sector, David Politis. We'll discuss the mysterious disappearances in national parks, right now on Veritas. 
David Polites holds two degrees from the University of San Francisco and has a professional background that includes 20 years in law enforcement and senior executive positions in the technology sector. Politis's meticulous research into the thousands of mysterious disappearances in U.S. national parks should be an object lesson on how the paranormal should be investigated. Politis does what most paranormal researchers fail to do. First, he examines a phenomenon that is truly unique without defaulting to the unofficial canon of New Age explanations for such. And second, his research is so thorough, objective, and vetted that it cannot be debunked. Many paranormal researchers try to explain one unknown with another unknown. Pilates does not do this. He seems to intuitively understand that when we are confronted by a mystery that has no logical, physical explanation, a phenomenon that seemingly originates outside of our known reality, one that defies physical laws, that any attempt to define or understand it will fail. We simply lack the conceptual vocabulary. Pilates has done a great service by bringing forth his missing 411 books and showing the reluctance of the National Park Service to come clean on the records of missing persons. And to learn more about David Polites and purchase his missing 411 book series, visit his website at canammissing.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from the state of Colorado, I'm privileged to introduce David Polites. Hello, Mr. Polites, and welcome to Veritas. Hey, my pleasure to be here, Mel. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure as well. And may I call you Dave? Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Dave, you have been investigating missing people for, for years now. To start, when and why did you start investigating missing people? Well, back in law enforcement days, uh, there was a small girl that disappeared in 93 up in Petaluma, California. And the FBI started a task force of local law enforcement and federal investigators to look into that case. I was part of the team from San Jose that went to Petaluma and assisted. And that was one of the later ventures into missing people in a, under a complex situation that I was in. Post that and after law enforcement, uh, I got into some other investigations on some other issues. And I was at a national park and I was being followed around by some people and I went back to the uh, cabin I was staying at after my day, and uh, later that night I got a knock on the door, and there were a couple people standing there, and they introduced themselves as off-duty National Park Rangers. They stated that uh, they knew who I was, they knew my background, and they had something that they wanted to tell me. I invited them in, and we ended up having a couple-hour conversation about missing people in national parks. And what they stated was is that they, between them, had been at several parks over their careers, and they'd seen a series of people disappear. And on that front end, there was a lot of publicity. Uh, there were a lot of investigations going on. There was a lot of movement. There was a lot of search and rescue people. But after that initial push of seven to ten days, there was nothing else. That was it. There was no more publicity. There was no more talk about those people they essentially got wiped right off the face of the earth. And their concern was is that there seemed to be too many people missing from their park system, nobody doing any follow-up about it, and there was nobody tracking it. And what they meant by that was is that almost every medium-sized and large law enforcement institution in the United States has a website, and on that website there is a section for missing people. Well, the National Park Service has a large law enforcement contingent. 
where these are just not rangers. These are law enforcement rangers that go to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Academy. They're highly, highly trained people, and they're administered by police officers and special agents and investigators at that high federal level. They know what they're doing. They don't go around the campsites and pick up garbage. These guys are and ladies are very good and highly trained. For some reason, the Park Service, in their infinite wisdom, has made a decision not to track missing people, not to publicize missing people, not to keep statistics on missing people, and to claim that they don't know how many people are missing inside of their jurisdiction. That's where it all started with, with this first conversation with these two people. Why don't they want us to know? Is it to keep the image clean and, and not to scare people from visiting the national parks, keep Smokey the Bear, the bear smiling? That's, there's the key, that Smokey the Bear, hug you, love you, there's nothing wrong in our parks. This past summer, myself and a friend were at a uh, national park, and we walked into this office, and there was a group of older gentlemen sitting around talking, and I just stood there at the office and listened. And I could tell that one of the guys was very intuitive and had a lot of information. And uh, I followed him outside, and I introduced myself, and it turned out that he was a retired special agent from the Park Service. And that opened up a conversation that was very, very enlightening. And a real polite man spent a career working inside the Park Service. And I explained to him the obstacles that I had hit in trying to get information out of him. And I said, why is this happening? And his words were, a lack of integrity. He says, Dave, you'll hit it at every level inside the Park Service. Uh, they should be tracking missing people. These statistics should be at, the, at our fingertips. We should know where the danger points are in the parks if there are. If there's clusters of disappearances, we should know. Every other jurisdiction knows in the world. Why don't we know? And he says it's a lack of integrity. Is it a lack of integrity or is it coming from the top down? Because this, these national parks, some of them are, are the primary revenue generator for, for many cities, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, there's a park outside of uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and they drag in revenue between $750 and $800 million a year for that area surrounding the park. So any adverse publicity that uh, decreases attendance at those parks will have a huge economic impact on the park itself and that community. The Park Service, and, and I think you got to understand the mentality of law enforcement itself. The rank and file people that you see driving in cars, the national parks that meet you at the gate, those people are upstanding, outstanding, super people. They aren't the policymakers. They don't make major decisions. They just follow the rules. Those rules are made in Washington by the Department of the Interior that administers the park service. And therein lies the issue. It's not the people at the parks. It's the people at the Department of the Interior. What uh, stumbling blocks have you faced and have you had any encounters with uh, higher ups or maybe even with the FBI? What have you found? So uh, initially when we got started, we filed a series of Freedom of Information Act requests on the Park Service asking for information on the number of missing people in Yosemite. That's one of the, their biggest parks in their system. They get millions of people a year. We figured that, that that would probably be the one location where they have resources to do these kind of things. 
And then as a follow-up request, we also asked for numbers of missing people inside the entire park system. From Yosemite, after that request, I get a call from an attorney asking why we want that information, which under the Freedom of Information Act, that cannot be used as a question in determination if you're going to get the information. And we knew that. And it was, it was confusing and complex why the attorney would ask that. And I've, n I've never heard of anybody getting called by an attorney on a Freedom of Information Act request. Subsequent to that, I got another call asking uh, when we wanted it, implying that we were going to get it. The truth of the matter was is that I got a letter about a month after that initial attorney call stating that the Park Service doesn't keep statistics on missing people, doesn't keep lists on missing people, doesn't have any lists on missing people, either at their office in Washington or any on the local level. And that if we wanted those lists from Yosemite, uh, that would cost us thousands and thousands of dollars, $34,000. If we wanted a list from Washington, D.C. on their entire system, that would cost us $1.4 million for them to draw it up and get it. So they want us to pay them these thousands and millions of dollars for them to do their job. And this isn't a hard job to do. And it's embarrassing being in from law enforcement that these people don't see the purpose or the importance of keeping this information. How expensive, Dave, could it be for them to keep uh, records on missing people? Shouldn't that be an Excel spreadsheet that it's updated frequently, that, that's all? Mel, I'll even drag it down one more notch. You're right. An Excel spreadsheet on any laptop you and I and everyone else in the public has would do it. But let's make it even easier. Let's take a $4 clipboard and a piece of graph paper and put the graph paper on the board and divide it up into six sections. Name, date, report number, location of incident, and disposition. And put that up in the superintendent's office. And every time somebody disappears, they put their name on that clipboard with all those criteria filled in. And then if they're found, they put a checkbox, found, and the disposition, deceased, okay, whatever. And there is your list for that park. Costs maybe $5. And if you do that, say, throughout their system, 183 locations, I've already said that our organization will pay for that clipboard and that graph paper for all 183 locations of the Park Service if they'll start maintaining those lists. So, yes, it's very, very easy. And I have to tell you, you sent me your book set a few weeks ago, and I'm just overwhelmed with what I'm seeing. I'm not an avid hiker, but I live in Arizona, and there are plenty of places to hike here. I have many friends who hike, and they do the opposite of what you recommend. They go alone. They go without a transponder. They go without a firearm. I, we can talk about this at the end of the show, but right from the beginning, I know a lot of hikers are listening to us right now, and their perception of what they do will change. What do you tell them? Well, I was like your buddies. I mean, I hiked around. I, I'm an avid fisherman, so carrying a gun sometimes was a pain, and I never carried a transponder. I loved the outdoors. 
And when I got away from my job and, and the crime that goes with inner city issues, when I was in the outdoors, I was free, fresh air. I loved it. Since spending five, four or five years now on this project, I can tell you my view of nature has changed drastically in that there are elements and dangers involved in the woods that I don't think the public is aware of. And I'm not talking about hooky, spooky kind of things. I'm just talking about standard dangers that you would have no idea about. When I first got into this years ago, I was walking down a lonely trail. I had a gun. I was walking down this lonely trail. After about four or five hours, I came back, and I could see my footsteps in the trail as I was coming back. And in those footsteps were mountain lion tracks. So he was either following me out, or since I went out there, that mountain lion had walked in my tracks going out to me. And that's just one of the small dangers that exist out there that you get attacked by a mountain lion, you better have a gun. Or a grizzly bear, which we see up in Wyoming and Montana, you better have a gun. And what I tell people now is that once you educate yourself about the totality of the dangers, say in Northern California, I hiked a lot, and then there's a lot of marijuana grows and a lot of methamphetamine labs. If I confront one of those guys out there, I, I, I better have a gun. And so... My, my point is, is that in all of the research we've done, there's only been one person we've ever found that disappeared under our criteria that had, was carrying a transponder. There's never been anybody that disappeared that we can know of fitting our profile where they were carrying a transponder and a firearm. So for the, for the last two years, I've been carrying a transponder and a firearm everywhere I go in the woods. And obviously, I would recommend carrying a GPS as well and a hard copy map and, uh, of exactly where you're at. Also carry a water filtration system myself. That's just one of the things I always do. But I think once you get the knowledge and you understand how many people have disappeared permanently, never been found, and not that it's in one isolated location of the U.S., but there's been a lot of cases in Arizona New Mexico, in the desert regions as well. And you would think, where can these people go and not be found? You know, I had people a few months ago bring your work to my attention. And after I read your books, I wondered, why don't we see this information, not from the national parks, perhaps not from the government, but other sources? Are you the only one that has really tackled this to the extent that you have? Well, the best I can tell is our group is the only one. I, um, a year and a half ago, during the summer, I was asked to give a presentation in front of the National Association of Search and Rescue Professionals, and it was about the elements that we found that were consistent in these 38 clusters of disappearances in North America, including the U.S. and Canada. And uh, I had a line of people going out the door talking to me, and I could say that half of them came up and said, you know, this has never been talked about before. No one's ever touched on it. The best we know, there's never been research about it. There has been research about missing people and the distances that they cover, but I don't think now, after looking at what we found, that the people understand some of the great distances and elevations that small children supposedly cover. So, yeah, I think what we're doing is really unique. 38 clusters of... That, that, is, that is incredible. And how about... Missing, presumed dead. 
is that what they categorize people when they want, quote unquote, off their books? That is it. And um, you'll see this a lot in the National Park Service and the U.S. Uh, force. When somebody, say a uh, 12-year-old boy, disappears in the woods hunting and they can't find him and a big snowstorm comes in and it goes through the winter and the spring and the boy's never found, then many times they will come up with a criteria called missing and presumed deceased meaning that there's a likelihood that this person died in the woods, will never be found, and rather than list them as a missing person on their books and have it discoverable under the Freedom of Information Act and have it known to the public that maybe there's something wrong in this area of the woods, let's just wipe the slate clean, call them deceased, and that's the end of that. We'll dispose of it. And uh, you've been investigating cases that go back all the way to the 1800s, right? Correct. Now, commonalities, common traits, corners, uh, information. What are the, some some of the common traits that you've been able to 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 connect between cases? So when we first started on this, uh, we were given a, a broad view of what these two Park Service employees thought was going on. And mainly, they just said that they thought that there was an abnormal amount of disappearances in their parks. There was a lack of publicity, a lack of follow-up, a lack of due diligence, and not much else. It took probably a good year of reading over a thousand cases to start to understand that a few of these had a thread running through them that was common. And after you read enough of anything and you start to take notes, you start to see a certain pattern develop. And it's that pattern or, or coincidence that's never been addressed before that is the unusual part of what we're doing. And I'll say that in the majority of these cases, the vast, vast, vast majority, the people disappear in a rural area. Most of the time, they are alone. Uh, many times, they're around boulders, and I don't, I, I can't explain why that's an, that's occurring, but that's an element. Many times, berries, wild berries, play a part in the disappearance. Other times, the people disappear with a canine, and sometimes the canine comes back, sometimes it doesn't. Other times, the people disappear. And they're found around a source of water. Many times they're found in a dried up creek bed, alongside of a creek bed. Um, it, just, it just is common. Other times, many people disappear around sources of water. And there seems to be a, a, a disparity between ages of people who disappear. Say there's a block of of kids that disappear between 18, 19, 20 months old and 10 years old. There's another block of older people, say above 65, that disappear. And then there's another block of people between the ages, say, of 50, 55, and 65. But usually, the vast majority of the disappearances don't involve people between the ages, say, of 25 and 50, which you would think that would be the larger block because those are the majority of people that are out in the exactly. woods. 
So yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense on that, but those are the facts. The other part of it is is that it seems that people with disabilities disappear at a much 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 higher rate than people without. And I'm not just talking about physical disabilities. I'm also talking about mental disabilities. People with autism, people, say, with a bad knee or a bad back, uh, those people go out and otherwise they're in fine shape, but they have this small minor disability and they're gone. And I've written about this time after time, and there's no logical explanation why they aren't found. Speaking of boulders, I let's start looking at some of the, the cases. I know you've been haunted by the case of a 14-year-old Stacy and uh, Aras or Aris. Can you explain? Yeah, Stacy uh, was 14 when she went on a uh, horse pack trip with her dad and seven other people in the Sunrise Meadows area up in uh, Yosemite. And what happened was is that uh, her dad, her and a, this group of people all got on a uh, horse's and they rode for six, seven miles into the back country. They stopped at a series of small cabins and they all got out and they went in and cleaned up. Stacy cleaned up and she came out and she told her dad that she was gonna go outside and take some pictures with her camera. And there was a 71 year old man that was on the trip that was sitting on a boulder about 100 feet away. And she told her dad, hey, I'm gonna go sit with this man and take pictures of the view out over this lake. Her dad and everybody there saw her go walking over to this boulder with the man, take these pictures. And she told the man that she was going to walk down the hill 100 yards to the lake and take some pictures of the lake and be right back. And everyone saw her leave the man. The man continued sitting there. They're at about nine, ten thousand feet in elevation. She walks down this boulder field into this tree-lined area around the lake. And that was the last time she was ever seen. She never came back. And there was a absolute massive, massive search for, for the girl. She actually lived in the community next to where I lived at the time. I was living in Los Gatos, California. She lived in Saratoga. So this case was close, and it, was, it bothered me a lot. And the more you hear about this, the more it's going to bother you. So the search, all they found is they found the lens cap from her camera just inside the tree line from where she walked in to the area by the lake. And I spoke to her uncle, who went to the scene and assisted in the search and said, hey, Dave, it was comprehensive. It was intense. It went on formally for 10 days, informally for two weeks. They brought in helicopters with forward-looking infrared radar. They brought in uh, umpteen dozens and dozens of professional search and rescue people. They found nothing. He says, the only thing we found was that lens camp. There were no other tracks. There was nothing it's like she vanished. So there was essentially nothing about that case for 25, 30 years. I made a request on it through Yosemite for the Freedom of Information Act to get a copy of the report. A special agent for the Park Service named Yu, last name Y-U, called me and asked me why I wanted the report. And I explained that we were doing some research on search and rescue and we specifically were looking into people who disappeared at Yosemite, and we wanted to see what in the report there was there. And he said, there was nothing there. And I said, well, are there any suspects? Is it a criminal case? He said, nope, it's a, it's a missing person case. I said, has anybody looked at it in the last 10 or 20 years? He says, not that I can think of. And I said, so there's no suspects. There's no work done on the case. 
She hasn't been found. Correct. I said, okay, well, could you send me a copy of the case? He said, nope. I said, why not? He says, because it's an open case and you'll never see it. I said, but we've gotten dozens and dozens of missing persons cases from the Park Service. Why not this case? He goes, you'll, you'll never see it. And we got off the phone. I went to uh, the, my local congressman in Campbell. I appealed through him. His representative in Washington, D.C. met with a representative from the Department of the Interior, and I got an answer back saying they won't release the case. The family of Stacy got a hold of me. They publicly asked for the case. It was denied. They made an appeal through the Park Service so the family could read the case. And this is, this is dragged on, I think, for two or three years, and they still haven't seen the case. So what happened to Stacy? Don't really know. But according to the Freedom of Information Act and what the law is intended to do is to give us access to information that our government has. This isn't a criminal case. There are no suspects. There's no crime that is thought to have occurred. Nobody can explain to me or that family why we can't see that case. And in order for you to know you know, the real story behind it, you need to know what happened. And that is exactly what you're trying to accomplish here. And isn't FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, isn't that our right as taxpaying citizens to obtain without being questioned? And, and the amusing part about that is, is that when Obama came into office, he oh, talked yes. about a new, a new phase of openness in our government. And honestly, I'm shocked that I mean, it's typical for the Park Service to refuse us. I'm shocked that they're refusing that family. Exactly. The family. They want to know. And here's another case that is also very important. The case of Dennis Martin lost in the Smokies. And the part that I'm not understanding here is that the Green Berets were involved. Tell us more. So Dennis was uh, up at a place called Spence Field, in the uh, mid-1960s with his dad, his grandfather, and his brother. And they, they hiked in, and they set up a small camp. And it's a giant field. It's a gorgeous location at the top of this ridge line on the Appalachian Trail. And the Appalachian Trail will come into play many times in our writings because there is a lot of very strange things that, are, that go on in conjunction with that. But the Martins were up there, and uh, the kids were playing hide-and-go-seek in the middle, you know, later part of the day, mid-afternoon. And this other family with some kids came up to him and said, hey, can our boys play together? And Mr. Martin, great guy, says, oh, yeah, sure, let him. And this woman reaches down and goes, oh, my name is so-and-so Martin. So imagine this. Same last name. The Martins are, yeah, the Martins are alone on this field in the middle of nowhere. And this other family comes along with the exact same last name as them. And I've had a lot of people write to us and say, well, didn't you think that was strange? I think it's highly strange. And I, it, it's hard not to imagine that that didn't somehow play into what happened next. So the kids are playing and they're playing hide-and-go-seek and the Martins, the adults are sitting 50 feet away. And Mr. Martin tells me that he sees his son run in behind a bush that borders this field. And he goes, Dave, I'm watching my son go behind the bush. I don't know why I'm watching, but I'm watching. And then all the other kids come out after they're playing nine and go seek, and my son doesn't come out. 
And he goes, the sixth sense told me that something is wrong. I got up from my chair. I walked right over to the bush, and Dennis wasn't there. Well, right adjacent to that bush is the Appalachian Trail going up through the middle of the park. And Mr. Martin took off at a dead run for two miles up that trail looking for his son. Never found him. Came back. His dad ran down the trail to Ranger headquarters. Within a couple hours, there were 50 rangers and people start scouring that mountaintop looking for Dennis Martin. Now, simultaneous with this people arriving and the search starting, what happened next was, I think, a cornerstone moment for us because Dennis Martin case was one of the first cases we really got into deep. Well, just as everyone's arriving and starting to search, the skies above the park just opened up and it started to rain. And it rained like no tomorrow for a week straight. Several inches of rain just inundated that park. And what that rain did is it wiped out any tracks, it wiped out any scent, it made searching for Dennis a hundred times harder. Now, this happened at about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. As this is going on at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a family, and this is, again, a name coincidence called the Key family, K-E-Y. And I believe this is a key point to the case, by the way. The Key family stops a ranger down at the lower level of the park, about 2,000 feet below, and asks them, where's a good place that we can go watch bears? And this ranger points him to this area and says, yeah, go on up this creek and you can go into this area. And there's a lot of wildlife that people usually don't walk up into. And the family walks up this little creek. I've been up there five times and I've seen one of the biggest bucks in my life in this area that was almost tame. And they walk up and they, as they're walking as a family, they hear the loudest scream they've ever heard in their life. And I'm talking like you and I could scream. I'm talking about something that reverberated through the valley. It was loud, they said. They keep walking up, and their son, 10-year-old son, goes, Dad, look up there on that hill. It looks like a bear. And the dad says, hmm, I don't know. It's, it's running around on two feet, and it kind of looks like it's wearing something dark or hairy, and it's, it's trying to stay behind the trees so we don't see it. And... After a while, it disappears, and this family goes back to their car and goes back to their home. The next day on the front page of the paper is this article about Dennis disappearing 2,000 feet above where the Key family was located. The dad says, smart guy says, you know, maybe what we saw was related to that disappearance. So the paper said that the FBI was sending someone to monitor the case. So they call the FBI and says, hey, we'll meet you out at the park and we'll show you the location we saw this. You guys can see if you can put it together. And the agent says, no, 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 no. Don't come to the park. We'll meet you. And they found some place in the middle. And the FBI agent, along with the special agent from the park service, went to meet the Key family. So Mr. Martin, who never left the park for six weeks, had an agreement with the park and their investigators that if they ever had any lead at all, they would immediately contact them, talk to them, and fill them in. Mr. Martin isn't like your normal guy. He's a hands-on person. He's very smart. He's an architect. And he was a great, great dad. He wanted to stay on top of things. He wanted to understand what was happening. He wanted to put it together in his own mind because I think maybe he had a sixth sense that something wasn't right with what was going on there.
And make a long story short, the Key family met with the FBI and the special agent, told their story, and then the special agent never told Mr. Martin. Through some friends, a reporter from the Knoxville Times heard about the Key family a couple days later, went to the FBI agent and said, hey, is this true? And the FBI agent said, yeah, it's true. We talked to him. And he says, well, why didn't you tell Martins? Ah, it's, it's unimportant because the distances don't make sense. Well, the reporter went out and met with the Key family and documented everything I just told you. And then went back and told Mr. Martin. And, to, and Mr. Martin went to the lead tracker for the time at the Park Service, a guy named Dwight McCarter, who I also interviewed. McCarter told him right away, no, 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 no. The Times makes sense. And you and I could make that time ourselves if we just walked fast. <laughs> really? The next, the next day, McCarter and Mr. Martin walked that distance down to where the Key family made their observation. Now, under the Freedom of Information Act, I requested that file, and I got a thick file. And I was anxious to get to the part about the Key family. And it's not in the file. Now... About the third day that the disappearance was, and the search was occurring, all of a sudden, big, huge army helicopters were landing at Cades Cove. And out stepped some Green Berets. And they set up a base away from everybody else with their own communication system. And they were going to go out and search. The Park Service and McCarter specifically made some inquiries about, well, it'd be best if you know a couple Green Berets went with a Park Service employee because they knew the park and they could kind of give them the ins and outs of where, where to go, where to not go. Green Berets said, no, we work alone. And they did work alone. Now, there, you're going to hear stories out there that, oh, the Green Berets were training nearby and they were called in. Well, the funny thing was, is there's nothing in any documents I've ever read anywhere about anyone calling the Green Berets into search. We've made three inquiries through the Freedom of Information Act to get the orders and the documentation of what the Green Berets did when they were at the park. And three times, the Army didn't deny it. They refused to even address the request. So we don't have anything except that they were there because their pictures were taken that they were there. So this goes on for, the search for Dennis lasted over two weeks. Mr. Martin was on it for four to six weeks, nonstop, always looking. He was a man that was just possessed by what happened and the quickness of what had happened. So going back through this, there's only two times that I've ever found where the Green Berets assisted on a search. And one was Dennis Martin, another case up in New York. Both the cases have a lot of similarities. In both cases, the boys, almost identical in age, were never found. Dennis was not only never found, they never found anything associated with Dennis. Mr. Martin won't talk to anyone about this because he believes he's been lied to for decades. What I did is I flew out there. He still lives in the same house he always lived in. And myself and another investigator went up and knocked on his door. And initially, he answered the door and said, you know, my wife and I have lived in our own personal turmoil for decades about this, and we made an agreement that we wouldn't talk about it anymore because it's just ruined our lives. 
I explained to him, I said, you know, there's probably nobody in this world besides you that maybe knows as much about this case as me. And I've spent a year looking into this. And if you'd just give me 10 minutes of your time, I'd be very, very grateful. He steps onto the porch, closes the door, and he goes, you got it. What would you like to know? And I asked him a, a series of questions. But the, the last question I always ask someone is, what does the public not know about this case that has never been publicized and that you think has been withheld? I ask this to witnesses all the time. And Mr. Mr. Martin looked me in the eye like I really, if I really wanted to hear this. And he said, well, Dave, do you know how many cases there have been around the park of missing kids? And I said, well, my guess is between 12 and 16 over the last 50 years. And he says, right. And he goes, do you know that the same FBI agent was the agent that was investigating the vast majority of those cases? I said, yep. And I named him. And he asked me, he said, do you know what happened to that agent? I said, no. He said he committed suicide. Hmm. And our investigator in Tennessee did some follow-up and found out that was true. And we don't know why he committed suicide, but it was very coincidental that that agent is the same agent that was monitoring every one of these cases of where these kids disappeared up in the mountains. The other thing Mr. Martin said, he says, there's one more really important fact. And he said, when the Key family saw this thing on the mountain running around behind trees, he said, the newspaper reporter, the Park Service, the FBI, nobody will talk about it. But that family saw this thing carrying something on its shoulder. And it was never documented anywhere. So, again, I take that as a very serious, serious accusation that there could be something being covered up. Again, went back to Dwight McCarter, McCarter, and I said, Dwight, you were in the middle of everything. Is this true? He said, yep, it's true. So I wrote back to the Park Service, specifically addressing this report that had to have been written by their special agent about the interview with the Key family, and the Park Service says, it doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Now, the question is, and I think that it's great that we can allocate as, as many resources as we can to, for a search, but why the Green Berets, Dave? Well, there's, I've gone on some, some talk shows, and I've said, you know, if there's ever a Green Beret that's retired that'd be willing to talk, I, I'd be willing to listen, because I want to understand why they were there. Now, twice I've gotten uh, emails from family members that said, hey, my, my dad or my uncle was a retired Green Beret member, and he said he was a part of it for 30 years, and he said, I'm telling you for a fact, we never searched for missing kids. And he says, I don't know what they were doing there, but they weren't searching for a missing kid. Then I've had another person say, well, the public is going to think that we were there searching for kids. And that may be, if you ever dig up an order, that's what we, on paper, were doing. But we really were never searching for a missing kid. But they never say what they were doing. And they never, so I guess they never break their secrecy up because they've never stated what their orders were. I have no idea what they were doing other than searching for Dennis, I guess. I have no idea. I think it's highly unusual, as did McCarter, that they wouldn't team up with, Park, with a Park Service employee that knew the territory. That seems kind of weird. 
it seems strange that they had their own communication system and they wouldn't communicate with the Park Service while they were there. Seems pretty odd. I don't know. You know, this is interesting because in the past, I would say three to four years, two people have contacted me, one from Flagstaff, another one from Sedona. And they both have reported seeing a Chinook helicopter landing and Green Berets coming out in the middle of Flagstaff, the desert area, and Sedona. Do you know anything about this? Are they just practicing or are they conducting searches? You know, it'd probably be outside the realm of my expertise to competently comment about it. But, uh, you know, we're in, we are in Iraq. We are in Afghanistan. That territory kind of exemplifies where they may be possibly going. So practice. logically, you may be able to say that it was practice. But I also know that there's some people that have disappeared in Sedona. So who knows? That's right. Well, Sedona is not that big. It's not the Grand Canyon. It's a mini Grand Canyon. But one, one thing that comes to mind, how about park rangers that have gone missing or, or rescuers that have gone missing? Have you looked into that too? Yeah, and that's, that's a bothersome issue in that the, uh, there have been two rangers that I researched that went missing. One was from Kings Canyon, Sequoia National Park. He went missing for about two weeks, three weeks, huge search. Didn't find him for, uh, I think, a year after that. And they found his remains in an area where nobody thought he would be under conditions that were highly questionable. And I'm telling you, they found just minimal remains of him. Another ranger disappeared from uh, Chiricahua Monument. I think that's how you pronounce it. And uh, he's never been found. Now, the interesting part about this is that both those case files I got in, in two separate boxes. They're huge. I paid nothing for those. But they were given to us, and they involved rangers that disappeared, one guy who's never been found, and there's been a thought of criminal misconduct. Maybe he was abducted. Yet they gave me those files, but they won't give up the heiress file. I mean, it makes no sense. And then other times they want to charge us tens of thousands of dollars for cases when at other times they won't charge us anything. So it's very odd. There, there was another case where uh, there was a search up in Alaska for a missing person. And while that search was going on, one of the most senior search and rescue people of that area went out and never came back. They brought in a FLIR looking for his ATV. They didn't find it until the following spring in an area that they thought they had searched before. And he wasn't the type of person to get off the ATV, yet they never found him, and they still haven't found him. So search and rescue people do disappear. It's very, very, very unusual. You've got to remember, they're wearing usually bright orange parkas, coats. They're usually carrying radios. GPS, they come prepared. These people are professionals. And in my books, I have never, and I would never slight a search and rescue team's performance because these people are giving everything themselves. Most of them pay for their own training. Most of them go on their own time. These people give more than most people would ever give during their lifetime. And without them, thousands of people would never be found. So my books are never to slight them, ever. Certainly, certainly. And another interesting fact that I found by reading 
many of your cases, is that a lot of times someone is reported missing and bad weather begins. What connection could weather possibly have about this? And I think that is a cornerstone key point to the research. I don't think that the weather is something that impedes the search progress by accident. It almost as though something knows that the bad weather is occurring and it's a time that bad things are going to happen. And I, I, I can't really understand it past that other than I'm somebody who knows wildlife and for the average person who's a fisherman or a hunter, they know that before bad weather hits, animals and fish act differently. Namely, uh, fishing improves. And it has to, has to do with the lower barometric pressure. And how would the fish know that living under the water? I mean, it doesn't, doesn't really make sense, but everybody does know that. And animals behave differently when bad weather rolls in. And some of the cases we found, it's like one minute the person's there, the next minute they're not, the following minute it just, the rain comes down in buckets, the snow comes down, the wind starts howling. The stories are just so coincidental, it's bizarre. It sounds... And it's... Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just thinking... Uh... It's almost as if whatever is happening behind the scenes, I want to say that is not to put a label on anything that could be abducting these people or luring them, but it's almost as if they know bad weather is coming. I can do this now because it's going to, weather is going to make it difficult for the search and rescue team to operate. Well, and probably to the people out there that know this, I probably have gotten a hundred emails in the last three years from people that say, well, we know that our government can manipulate weather. And we supposedly bought, a, bought some patents and we have a location where we try weather manipulation in regards to warfare and uh, strategic military action. And looking it up, it does appear that our government does have some ability to control weather based on the technology that they acquired. So is there some ability to control weather? There appears to be. I don't know for sure. But when I was sent these hundreds of emails, it does seem like there's something to that. Something you cannot discount, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would be stupid to turn around and say, no, it can't occur. When on a patent that our government purchased, it says that it's, it's used for weather manipulation. That's right. And we, I don't mean to get into uh, the issue of chemtrails during this, this interview, but we see that all the time. And, uh, you know, hours later, we see weather developing, rain and so on. But another interesting fact here is that sometimes dogs refuse to follow scent. How could that happen? Now, that's, that's a point that uh, was also key to this, because... I'm somebody that's, I worked on a unit for two years where I was around canines and part of that uh, search team that worked with the SWAT team. So I was around these dogs and they lived for the search. You let them out of that car and they're, they're the happiest dogs in the world. They want to go find somebody. I mean, that's, that's what they live for. And when you bring a dog out to a trail, I mean, they are interested, they're eager. You give them the scent, a coat some socks, a sleeping bag, and they're all over it. In an, in an 
abnormal amount of times. The dog is taken to the trailhead. They walk in a circle. They want nothing to do with that trail. They sniff around a little bit, walk in a circle, and they want to go back in the car. But in 99%, 99 99.9% of the cases we chronicle, dogs never find a scent. And therein lies a really, really good question. Does that mean that the scent isn't there? Or does that mean that there's some phenomena occurring that scares the dog away? But I don't think there aren't many conclusions that you can draw from this other than those two because of the number of times, and we're talking over almost 700 right now, where bloodhounds are brought, bloodhounds, canines, whatever kind of tracking dog you want, are brought to the scene, and they don't want to look, they don't want to track, or they do track, and they don't find anything. Or they go left, and the person is found 10 miles away to the right. It's very, very unusual. And when you talk to the handlers, they said, you know, it's something that uh, you're talking about, but most people don't want to talk about it. But it has happened to me, and I've seen it, and I can't explain it. See, the more I read about all this, the more I'm puzzled. And here's another thing that I've heard before. I've heard you mention the sudden silence, you know, the vacuum feeling. I've spoken to many researchers who report paranormal activity when, when this happens, almost as if a static field engulfs the area, electrically charged, even though the temperature changes all of a sudden. Have you found this too? You know, I can't say that I've, I've experienced that static field. People have asked me if I've ever had this silence around me before. And uh, one time I was hunting with a friend who was in his 60s. And uh, we were way up in the Northern California mountains in the middle of nowhere. And a uh, beautiful day. Wind was blowing a little bit. And we're walking together, and something struck me, and I stopped, and I said, Frank, you, you hear that? And, and as quiet as this phone line is, that's how quiet it was. And we looked up to the top of this Douglas fir tree a couple hundred feet up, and the tree's blowing. There's no sound in the forest. There's no squirrels. There's no leaves rustling. And he went and he sat on the other side of the tree. I sat on the near side of the tree, kind of watching each other's backs. We sat there for 30 minutes. And then all of a sudden, the sound came back. And things, I, I can't explain this, but things felt normal again. But it was an abnormal sense. He said, he goes, Dave, I've been in the woods 55 years. I've never, ever felt or seen that happen before. And he goes, I can guarantee something was going on, but I don't know what it was. What about the common denominator between people picking berries and mushrooms? You see a lot of missing people who start by doing this. Yeah, and that's, if, if you talk about food source, and let's talk about berries for a second. I mean, they're probably one of the most healthy food sources we could eat as humans. And in the areas where there are berries, there probably isn't a lot of that type of food source in that area during that minimal amount of time that it's available. Same with mushrooms. There's a very limited time that they are available for consumption. And a lot of times these people that are out there, let's say a berry picker, and I have an entire section of, of these people that have disappeared. Right. 
that uh, it's very strange. I mean, you, you can't attribute it to bears because when the area is searched, they don't find bear tracks. You can't attribute it to mountain lions because they don't find mountain lion tracks. And a lot of times, the if the person is attacked, per se, more times than not, there's going to be a lot of screaming and fighting, and that person's going to fight for their lives, and people are going to hear it. If nothing else, there's going to be an attack location. There's going to be blood, hair, clothing. You're going to see that somebody was attacked. And I get to ask this question a lot. Well, what percentage of times do the people that you chronicle have they been attacked by animals? Zero percent of the time. Because when search and rescue people go in and look, they look for these locations. They look for these indicators. And specific canines that are brought in are looking for these alpha predators if they're in that area. And they're never found. Tracks are never seen. When professional trackers are brought in, they look for these kind of things. They don't find them. So as far as berries and mushrooms, I think it's a key point that too many people disappear in conjunction with them searching for those berries or mushrooms. And there, there does appear some kind of strange and unusual connection between the two. And two states, Texas and Florida. Why do you think there are so many disappearances of people in those two states that it's overwhelming? Why do you think? So I stated that pretty early in the research because we had two stacks, huge stacks of missing people from those two states. And we kind of put it off to the side because it was overwhelming. When we finally got into those stacks and started to work our way through them, and you look at the minutia inside each of those cases, the specific elements, you you start to find that there's a lot of missing people, but they don't meet, meet that criteria of what we're looking for, of what I've already discussed. So, Yeah, there are a lot of missing people, but a lot that apply to what we're doing here, I don't think so. You know, there's probably five or 10 right now, maybe 15 in Texas, and about five, 10, maybe 15 in Florida. And as time goes on, more and more cases will will come to our our uh, focus, but it's a slow process. And, and there aren't as many as we originally thought after we finally went through those cases. Now, if they are found, a lot of these people are found in an area that was previously searched. You haven't been with law enforcement for so many years. What logic does this present? None. It, and again, there have been some people that have listened to my interviews and taken just little short quotes and said, oh, you're, you're dissing the search and rescue. Far from it. These search and rescue people sometimes say that an area was gone over five to ten times and the person wasn't found. I am saying that if the search and rescue people searched an area five to ten times and they say the person's not there, the person wasn't there. It isn't that they did a substandard job in their search. They did a fine job in that search. If they went through there and then they brought their canines and they went over it with FLIR and they didn't find it or the person, the person wasn't there. You can't convince me that uh, the couple hundred times that we've seen this, that every time the person was there and they were missed. I, I find that impossible based on all the technologies that she used, the canines, the searchers. I don't believe it. And what is it? 90% of the people found don't want to talk about it. Or they don't want to talk about what happened. Don't remember. Or they're too young to even talk. And I didn't even want to mix alien abduction with 
with this interview, but I remember the the uh, work of the late great Dr. John Mack, alien abductions. People don't remember; they're too scared. They have to be regressed. Have you found some commonalities be here between the people who disappear and don't remember or are too scared to talk about it? So I, I have never been somebody that's drawn uh, a line from disappearance to cause. I will say that the majority of the people that are found have a disability that inhibits their ability to describe what happened to them. The child is too young to talk and explain in detail what happened to them, or the people claim that they don't remember and won't say what happened. And in the times where the people say what happened to them, a lot of times the press won't print it or what's happened to them is made a joke. And the reason I can say that with surety is that when we go out and we research a case, sometimes I find 10 or 20 articles about an incident, say in the 1940s or 50s. In one out of the 20 articles, there's a statement in there about what the victim said happened to her. And in that one statement, we find that it matches other statements from other women that disappeared in decades afterwards. As an example, a woman disappeared last year and she was gone for five days. And she was interviewed by a physician and told the physician that when she was in the woods, there were strange people that were looking at her hiding behind bushes. And when she asked them for help, they wouldn't talk to her and they wouldn't, they wouldn't come out of the bush and they tried to conceal themselves. Along the Appalachian Trail, there have been similar stories where a woman was chased on the Appalachian Trail by men that she could hear, sometimes see, but ran for two weeks trying to stay away from them. There's another case where a girl was living on a farm and she disappeared from her backyard. She was found days later by a helicopter miles away and she said that she was chased by a man in the woods tackled and went unconscious, gained consciousness a long time later, and said that she can't remember what happened to her. So there are these small little quips about what happened that kind of give you an insight as to what these people say happened. But the reality is, is that there's never enough there to really say with a surety what transpired. I see a lot of, that the coroners mostly say it appeared to be this, it might be that, but they don't seem to have real conclusions. Could some of these people have died because they were literally, Dave, bear with me here, literally scared to death? You know, and we have talked about that, and that came up several, several times in discussions. And I don't, I don't like making light of anyone's death, and it's not a funny topic, but no, you hit on a point that I think that some physicians would scratch their head saying, we don't know why this person died. And they don't like to admit it. And I think many of them, when their backs get to the wall, they'll say, well, it appears that they died of exposure. Or there's a case in the eastern, missing 411 eastern U.S., where a girl disappeared. And I, I quoted it. The doctor said that she died of moon madness. I've never heard it before, never heard it since. And it was a strange case where a girl, young girl disappeared. I think she was in her teens. 
and she was found in some bushes, dragged a great distance, and law enforcement said, oh, no, no, uh, it wasn't foul play. And then the coroner came, came out with this moon madness. I, I still don't have any idea what that meant. And we have to take our one and only break uh, in a minute, but let me just leave the audience with this case that we'll discuss when we come back. And I'm really puzzled and fascinated by this case. It's uh, the John Doe Mount Shasta case. This is a, a little boy, I believe, who gets lost. And when he comes back, he tells a story of supposedly being taken to a cave, sees what seems to be the twin of his grandmother. And there are robots inside the cage. Don't tell us more because this is a fascinating story, but tell people how they can buy your, your excellent books, learn more about your work, and if they can help with the pursuit of, of your findings. So we're at the Can-Am, C-A-N as in Nancy, A-M as in Mary, missing, Canadian-American kind of, canammissing.com. You can Google Missing 411, which is the title of all the books, and uh, Really, uh, I've, I've asked anyone that if they hear about a disappearance, a highly unusual disappearance in the woods, you know, send us an email at missing411 at yahoo.com. The chances are we've already heard about it. There's a greater chance we've already written about it. So uh, it helps if you've read the books so that we don't get duplicate uh, submissions, but we're always interested in hearing, and uh, that's how we get many of our leads. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with author, a researcher, David Politis. And do me a favor, folks. If you know a hiker, a loved one, a friend, a family member, they need to listen to this interview and they need to have David's books. Once you read them, I want you to listen to what's on segment two. You won't be visiting a national park the same way again. I'm telling you, it happened to me. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. So, so you think you can tell Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell a green field From a cold steel rail A smile from a veil Do you think you can tell Did they get you to trail Leave. 
This is Whitley Strieber, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.